Hi, my name is Don Fletcher. I'm a former chairman of the J. Reuben Clark Law Society of the Phoenix Chapter. And today we're very pleased to have with us Paul Gilbert, who was my predecessor many years earlier, was one of the founders of the Phoenix Chapter of the J. Reuben Clark Law Society, is a founder in the law firm of Buse Gilbert in McGroder now. Uh, Paul has had a very interesting life in practicing the law, as well as giving lots of time for different pro bono issues, as well as giving service to the uh, greater community of Arizona, as well as to uh, uh, other interests. Uh, uh, were you ever the, you were involved with the Alumni Association up at BYU, weren't you? I was the president. Yeah, that's what I remember. You were also the president of the BYU Alumni Association. So uh, with that introduction, I'll go ahead and start with the questions here. Uh, first off, uh, <clears throat> Paul, where did you grow up? I grew up in Provo, Utah. My father, my second father, uh, was a dean at uh, BYU, and I attended Brigham Young Elementary, Brigham Young Junior High, Brigham Young High School, and graduated from BYU. Tell us about meeting your wife. You, was she on the debate team there, you said? Yes, uh, she was on the debate team, and uh, I was immediately attracted to her, but I felt she was uh, above my class. So I didn't have enough courage to ask her out. So it took me a year, and I finally asked her out, and when I started dating her, I stopped dating any other girl. Did she ever say, why did it take so long? Uh, she did. <laughs> she later confided in me that she was wondering why I, I not only took so long, but, but why I was so shy. <laughs> and I'm not, basically, I'm a fairly gregarious person, but to the opposite sex, I was, I was a little shy. Then you graduated, uh, did, did you get married while you were at BYU? Yes, my senior year. And then you went to law school from there, uh, where did you go to law school? At the uh, University of California, Berkeley. That's a very conservative institution over there? Yes, it was a, a nice contrast from BYU to Berkeley. <laughs> My mother didn't visit us until we graduated, and I attended Berkeley at the zenith of all the protest movements the Vietnam War was going on there. My mother, when she visited, said, if I had known what this place was like, I never would have let my father attend school here. <laughs> and my father, for my graduation, was so enthralled with my classmates who went through the graduation line wearing devil's costumes and protest signs back in the days of the eight millimeter film. So he filmed all my classmates and ran out of film before I came up. So I don't have any film on my well then, how does a young man from Provo in Berkeley wind up in Phoenix? Uh, good question. My, my father died when I was just three years old. And my second father uh, married the Driggs, and she died. So he dated and married my mother, and he was from Arizona graduate from uh, Tempe Normal. And we would come here to visit 
the Driggs and the family, and I fell in love with Arizona when I first came. And in fact, I told my wife that if uh, we were going to get serious, she needed to know that I had my eye on Phoenix. What attracted to you to Phoenix as a young person then? Uh, the weather, I just, I really liked the weather. Um, I served a mission in Holland and it was a gloomy, rainy country. And global winters wore me out. And boy, it just seemed like the celestial kingdom to come to, to uh, Phoenix. And then uh, I was recruited quite heavily by Rex Lee, um, uh, who was very instrumental in my coming here as well. Rex Lee is quite an icon in the J. Rubel Clark Law Society as well as in the legal community. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with uh, Rex. When did you first meet him and uh, share some personal experiences you had with Rex? Well, I first met him uh, his cousin, I think it was, Merwin Grant, introduced us. And we shared the fact that we were both student body presidents at BYU. And so that kind of started off a little bit of a friendship. And that developed. And then um, he uh, interviewed me for a position here and very much encouraged me to come. Um, and he uh, was also president of BYU when I was alumni president of BYU. So I got to work with him then, and I worked a lot with him when he had one of the generating plans. And we were behind schedule, and Rex said, okay, here's your assignment. There were seven of us, and we all had an assignment to research a particular topic, and then the Rex would dictate the brief, and then when mine was latches, so when we came to latches, he'd say, and the law of latches is, and I would tell him, and then he would dictate it and put it into the brief. But because we were behind schedule, he gave secretary express instructions not to be interrupted. And we were working literally round the clock. About halfway through the session, his secretary came in and said, Mr. Lee, I'm very sorry, but one of your very pesky relatives is on the phone and absolutely insists that I interrupt you, despite the fact I told him not to. But, but since he was your relative, I thought I'd better ask him. Rex said, look, Rex got to be the founding dean of the BYU Law School. So hmm. I was there for that historic moment. Just to put in a little plug for Rex, I admired him so much. I've never been around a finer legal mind than Rex. Um, he just was very, very bright. And what I liked about him too, he was very, very smart, talented, and quick, and fun to be around. Poor basketball player, but other than that, I liked him. <laughs> Uh, so, did he recruit you to come to Phoenix, yes. is, is that right? Yes, and, and his firm, which was Jane Strauss's. So, was he on the interviewing committee at Berkeley, or how, how did that all work out there? No, I'm sorry, I don't have a more precise recollection. I think 
Oh, yes, I remember now. Uh, my law partner, Leo Buse, was a year ahead of me, and he was at Jennings and indicated to Rex that I was interested in coming to Phoenix, so Rex called me and I flew out and interviewed uh, at the law firm. You have had a, uh, what would be almost, what, a 50-year relationship with Leo Buse? Yes, that's right. Tell us about that a little bit. Where, where did you meet uh, Leo, and how, uh, how did that all play out? Well, we both served missions in Holland. I was about six months ahead of him, um, and he replaced me um, uh, in the mission office as the assistant to the president, and we worked a lot in the same areas. We opened up a new area in Holland called Maastricht fast friends and then um, uh, I became uh, I think it was his own leader and he was a supervising elder I think in my district and then um, when I would travel from the mission home I spent a lot of time tracking and working with him and we would frankly look forward to manipulating the system somewhat so we could spend some time together enjoyed each other and then we um, came home from our missions, and we were very, very close friends at BYU, and we were debate partners at mm -hmm. BYU on the BYU debate team. Um, and then uh, the only time he ever did me in was he went to Michigan, I went to Berkeley, so he was a year ahead of me in Michigan, and he was the seminary teacher. And he tried to get me to go to Michigan, and I found out later to replace him as the seminary. <laughs> Finishing up with uh, Leo, uh, we also dated our wives together um, and became very close and stayed close. Uh, you were the student body president at BYU, is that correct? That's right. Wow. Surprises you. <laughs> no. <laughs> Did you, uh, were you involved in uh, student politics or, or student government in high school too? I, I have the union student body president of young high school. and You have a little bit of a political bug then, don't you? Yes, but I managed, I managed to supplement it. <laughs> Explain that. <laughs> well, as I think I mentioned to you, my wife's biggest fear when she married me is that I'm going to politics. She had got a commitment from me very early on, at least for the first 10 years I would do nothing. And I honored that. And I well, you have uh, you've been very generous with your time and your uh, resources to help certain political causes here in the state of Arizona. Um, you've worked with a lot of different political candidates. Uh, Tell us about some of the people that you've met and some of the people. For example, did you know John McCain at all? I did. It was very interesting because John, I was the state chairman for Mitt Romney, and he ran against McCain. And they ended up very good friends. And Mitt introduced me. And as part of the introduction, McCain asked me to get on board. And help. So I did. I became very active for no longer in competition. Hmm. What were some of your impressions about the maverick John McCain? Uh, I liked him. Um, I, I thought he was very sincere and committed 
and I don't know if it started off this way, but I think he ended up running for office and holding office because he wanted to do what he felt was, and I felt he was. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with Mitt Romney. When, how did you connect up with him? Uh, my son, oldest son, taught at the Harvard Business, uh, and Mitt was running. I can't remember if it was he ran for governor or when he ran against. But anyway, he was running for office, and um, we were back visiting my son. Mitt uh, showed up, and we were talking, and we just struck it off, and we sounded a bit presumptuous. We came very close. Um, that friendship <laughs> bloomed, and we talked together a lot. I ended up when he asked me to. Was that... Uh... 2008 or 2012? I'm sorry. 2012, he gets the nomination. No, yeah. I, is it 2018? Yes, 2012, he gets the nomination. Yeah. I, okay. The, the time I did, I I was his campaign manager both times. The okay. Time he didn't get the nomination, and the time he did, it was a lot of fun. We would campaign when he would come here. We started at the southern end of the state one day and just worked our way up came up and then get together in Tempe and we had a fun time. And I'll never forget, uh, I I walked out with him, uh, one of the big, a couple thousand people there. I walked right in front of him. People were asking for my autograph. Mitt <laughs> <laughs> Romney turned to the, some of the people that were asking for my autograph and said, who is this guy? I've never seen him before. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. We, we had a lot of fun, and that friendship was uh, probably no. I was the state president of the single adult state, and we had a young single adult conference, almost 5,000. And I got Mitt to come and be the speaker. And we came out, and, and sitting on the stand were all the state presidents in the valley. And uh, Mitt got up and said, You know, it's a real irony. I am the only non-president sitting on this guy. <laughs> <laughs> he had a great, great sense of humor. Uh, then, um, you, uh, as the state coordinator, or the state co-chairman, or whatever, did you get to go to the 2012 National Republican Convention? I certainly did. I was the uh, co-chairman of the Republican. Wow. Tell us about that experience. That also was a very, very fun experience. Uh, I had never, that's the only convention that I've ever been um, and uh, it was just exciting to see how the process worked, meet a lot of people. Our seats were right near the platform and on the day men walked down the aisle to get up and see the nomination, I was the second person away from the platform walking up and he saw me and he came over and hugged me. And all the cameras <laughs> caught that. <laughs> I, I must have received hundreds of emails saying, wow! <laughs> so That's exciting. For a, a, a very narrow but fun moment, I felt like I was somebody. Well, that's fun. That's great. Of all the political people that you've met and dealt with, what one stands out, or is there one or two people that you really admire of all those people you've met? I would say Mitt Romney. I, I got to know him very well, and I, I don't want to go into too much detail, 
but we would have every other week calls where all the state chairmen would call in on conference call and give correction. And I remember so well some of the callers coming. It was particularly during the time when we were not in good shape in the polls. And several of the camp managers suggested that Mitt needed to put a little distance from himself. Um, and I will never forget the answer from his campaign man, who was not a member of the church, and said, he said unequivocally and firmly, that would it's interesting. That was a, that was a fun experience. Another experience, they were saying that Mitt was, they needed to do something to energize him. And his campaign leadership told us, he said, oh, we figured that out. He's been away from his wife too long, so we're having his wife join him. <laughs> Boy, he's his old self. <laughs> yep, yep. I could revalue it a lot of stories. Huh. <laughs> Everything I saw uh, from getting to know him, a personal led nothing but generated nothing but admiration. Tell me about the starting of the J. Rubin Clark Law Society. Okay. What was your involvement with that, and who invited you to participate? And uh, Rex Lee was dean of the law school and called me up and uh, discussed with me his concept for law societies, not just here in Arizona, but we were the first one outside Utah that they really looked at. Uh, and I gave him some of my ideas. He said, great, we would start an Arizona chapter and be the chairman. I accepted. Uh, I think our chapter has always been leading chapters associated with the law school. You had a wonderful dinner one time where Elder Oak spoke. Yes. Do you remember that? I do. I remember. I can't remember what he said, but I remember the occasion. Well, there's two things that happened that night. One was O.J. was on the freeway, and everybody was trying to figure out what O.J. Simpson's doing. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, what an incredible distraction. And the other thing was, I think it was the sesquicentennial, or uh, it was some anniversary of the martyrdom of the Prophet Joseph Smith. And uh, I remember Elder Oak spoke very eloquently there, but what a wonderful dinner it was. I remember you were on that organizing committee, and uh, you organized lots of wonderful things for the law school, or I mean for the society over the years. Um, um, you were involved with the tribute to justice that we did for uh, Bud Jones. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about your relationship with Bud Jones and who he was? Good. That's easy to do. Uh, Bud was uh, a lawyer at Jennings, Strauss, and Salmon. Uh, was the first person, other than Leo and Rex, that I got interviewed. And he became really a mentor for me. And my office was right next to him. And I did a lot of work, legal work with him. Um, and then he later became... So uh, he knew my salary. I had to pay a full time. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, I've always been very close to him. His family and our family got very close. We spent a lot of time together. I'm still very close to Ann Jones, my ward. Mm -hmm. And uh, gained a lot of respect for Bud. He, uh, he reminded me a lot of the admonition from the Sermon on the Mount about not doing your alms. And that's how I would just quietly do it. Very, very. You uh, headed up the efforts to uh, fund a, a scholarship or a chair in his name. 
Uh, tell us about that a little bit. Well, um, we were asked by originally by the law school, BYU Law School, to head that up. And then, I'm uh, not sure exactly the evolution, but it became apparent that we wanted to do something simultaneously for ASU. So we raised two scholarships, one for BYU Law School, one for, and we got a committee together, solicited funds, and put together enough money that they were able to fund the scholarship for both universities. That's a marvelous thing. So there's a Bud Jones chair at BYU and a Bud Jones chair at ASU? I know there is a BYU. I'm not sure what it's called today, but we did fund something analogous to You've been involved with lots of issues involving the church in the greater Phoenix area. One of them was the Phoenix Temple. Could you tell us a little bit about that? That was a wild ride. Uh, I was asked to do the legal work for both the Phoenix Temple and the Gilbert Temple. And the Gilbert Temple, you would know, was very smooth. We had a few rough bumps along the way. But we reaped the whirlwind of the temple. And I may be into more detail than you want to know, but I find it to be a very interesting story. We uh, looked at several sites, uh, and I did the legal work about what it would take to buy them and so on. And none of them felt very good, and so the church decided to take a site where there already was a church, and we owned some extra ground, and then we had to go buy some more ground. So we did that, and uh, because of some uh, peculiarities of the temple, we actually had to have a zoning here, and mostly dealing with height and coverage and setbacks and so on. And so we held a neighborhood meeting at the church, and you couldn't get it. There was so much opposition, and that opposition to grow, and there was a hardcore of who lived right behind the team. They really went out. They hired some attorneys to oppose us. They showed up at our meeting uh, and opposed us. They picketed us. It was really difficult, tempestuous zoning. But we won the zoning hearing unanimously. City Council approved it. Incidentally, it was the largest zoning hearing ever held. People, they had to hold it in Orphan And it was jam-packed. So we won that, and I thought, my work is done. Everything's fine. The neighbors then reached out to a couple of law firms and filed a referendum a referendum is something, if you get enough signatures on referendum, it obviates the zoning and it goes to a public vote. They hired a lot of people, they hired professional circulators, and they got over, I think, close to 20,000. And so, it was scheduled for a public vote. And, again, this may be more detail than you want to no. hear, but... Uh, so the church came down, we had a long strategy session, and basically my marching orders were, we don't want to go to a public vote, but we want the temple, <laughs> and we want it in that location. So I'm saying, wow. <laughs> Again, a long story short, uh, we figured out a way 
because churches are allowed in fees as a matter of right. It's only if you bend the rules or need some special concessions that you have to have the zoning. We figured out a way fit the temple on that piece of property and not have to have a zoning here. Hmm. And the irony was we made the temple larger. It had more square footage. We lost six feet of height on the spire. So, but in order to do that, we had to get nine variants from the zoning order. Variances aren't susceptible to a referendum. Hmm. So we knew if we won the variances, we were home free. So we filed the variances, had the two required hearings, and we won all of the variants. Uh, and then, basically, the opposition was stuck. There wasn't much they could. Again, a long, complicated story after lengthy negotiation. We made a couple of more minor compromises, very minor. And the neighbors, uh, and I'm sorry, I forgot to add, they filed a lawsuit challenging and Lawsuits challenging variants don't go anywhere. They're very hard to open. Um, but they filed the lawsuit, and then they agreed to drop the lawsuit. A couple of minor minor changes. The temple is built, and the nice follow-up is we had a special open house just for those neighbors, hmm. and most of them came. And it was a, almost a love fest. They said if we had any idea how nice this building was going to be. We would never have opposed it. Sorry, we did. There were a hardcore few that didn't come, and that are still. I ran into one of them about five years. And he's still there. But that's the story of the hmm. Phoenix Temple. Wow, wow! Tell us about your. You've done lots of service uh, through different ecclesiastical positions. What's one or two incidents that? you feel good about in terms of your service when you were a stake president or a bishop or was there a particular moment or incident that uh, was meaningful for you? I would say the most meaningful was when I represent human services that owns a large piece of property <coughs> at about Madison and that houses the shelter and it's the main shelter uh, and we had about 500 children. And the Human Services Campus came in and asked me if I would represent. And that required filing and processing. And so we did. And that took almost a year, nine months. Again, the opposition was vehement. Uh, the neighborhood around there formed groups, hired attorneys, and we had a real battle. But with some compromises, it was everything was 90%. So we were successful in putting in the number three. Still not enough. That was a very satisfying thing. Another time, the church was on an asylum seat. And these asylum seats were permitted to come to the United States. But in order to come under that program, they had to have a relative or someone sponsor them. So they would not be a financial burden, but there was no place for them to come to the United States, uh, and it would take take three or four days to process. And so, the government was dropping them off at the bus shelter, and it was just terrible. And then it's hard to believe there are people in spirit that people were, would come, and 
and pray on these people. We'll help you. Give us your money, and we'll take. Of course, they were locked on, and it was a very bad situation. So a group of churches got together and um, worked on a program. I was asked to join, handle a zoning case. We negotiated with a local high school, a high school down by the airport that was closed. They let us have it for a very minimal amount. We got another group to sponsor and pay for the, and then uh, had hearings, zoning hearings, and got as an asylum center. And uh, one of the apostles came down, Rasband, came down and uh, had heard about it and wanted to see it, take a tour of the place. He was just pretty impressed. And what a worthy cause. He could come there, we could free of being preyed on by others, got them to where they needed. And that asylum is still in operation. Well, two last questions. My friend Bill Atkins says, we come to the law because we feel a sense of calling to it. Um, do you believe that in yourself? And what have you done to fulfill that calling? Well, that assumes the predicate that I feel the calling. <laughs> and I have to be honest. I became a lawyer in part because I didn't have any other skills. Sure. I wasn't good with my hands. I wouldn't. Could have been a doctor or an architect. It was a profession that uh, excited me. And then, so my motives for entering the law were were less than commendable. But once I got in the law, liked it, and saw it to really do good for a lot of people. And I don't know of a profession that gives you more of an opportunity to really be of service to I've been very proud to be a lawyer and feel that it has afforded me an opportunity to provide some. We talked early on that many of the people who may be listening to this are of a younger generation. Um, what would you say to them about your legal experience and, and encouragement or words of wisdom that you would impart to them? Wow, that assumes that I'm a lot smarter than I am. Advice I would give to young people, don't be discouraged. We have, I think we put far too much in a lot of very capable people that are in law school, I think, are concerned be just average. And I would say to them, with the law, a broad area, room for everyone. Your performance in law school doesn't necessarily serve as a barometer of how effective or successful you in the practice of law. If you're in the middle of the class, so what? Go do your best, and you'll find that doors open and an opportunity to serve. There will be lots of opportunities to be very successful in the top ten. Well, thank you so much for your time here, Paul, and appreciate the opportunity to I said, I've known you for a while, but I've learned a lot from you during this podcast. So, well, you've uh, been very patient with a morning interview. <laughs> well, a great man and a great opportunity. And uh, thank you very much.